Hello, this is Keith Dent, the host of Black Men Speak, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. The Appalachian region is a cultural region in the eastern United States that stretches from the southern tier of New York State to northern Alabama and Georgia. Because of its lack of physiographical and topographical boundaries, people often consider the Appalachian region in states like northern Pennsylvania, eastern Kentucky, and southwestern Virginia, where coal supplied two-thirds of the nation's supply. In shows like The Andy Griffith Show, The Beverly Hillbillies, and novels like 1970's Deliverance, and the recent book Hillbilly Eulogy, depicted the region as backward, violent, impoverished, hopeless, and white. But there was another side of the Appalachian region that paints a different picture that is often overlooked until now. And there is a new book titled The Harlan Renaissance that highlights just that. It's a book about the Appalachian region and the African-Americans that live there. The author and today's guest is Dr. William H. Turner. He highlights black life in the Appalachian coal camps and how they built sustaining communities in the midst of racism and discrimination and still produces many ambitious, talented, and accomplished people despite the obstacles. Come on back and hear my conversation with Dr. William H. Turner. Dr. Turner, uh, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Thank you, Mr. Dent. Thank you for having me on. Uh, great, great. So I want. let's go ahead and get started. So I wanted to um, talk about the two books that you've known are really around the Appalachian region. So I really want to kind of dispel, you know, some of the, maybe the myths that uh, younger Black people have about the region. Um, and, you know, as you know, Black history doesn't really get told the way it should. So when people think about the Appalachian region, uh, you know, what usually comes to mind? And then, you know, what are some of the myths that you have kind of dispelled about the region? Okay. I uh, think it's fairly common when people uh, think of Appalachia, uh, they think in terms of uh, uh, stereotypes uh, that uh, existed uh, when I came along, for example, uh, you think of the Beverly Hillbillies. There was mm. an iconic movie in the early 70s called Deliverance. Uh, we think of hillbillies, we think of toothless, impoverished whites in the mountains of the South. Uh, we think of fundamentalist Christians who are incestuous and we think of these violent people who are strangers who live way out in the edges of nowhere in the mountains of the south uh and so uh we, we even think about it in terms of uh uh, uh as i said a moment ago uh, uh, a few years ago 2016 i think a book came out called hillbilly elegy which was about white hillbillies well uh as you might find in most cases that have anything to do with the broad spectrum of American life and history, ever since there's been a place called America, there are 
been people of color, specifically black people of African descent who have been part of that American history. And we're just at a point where even as we speak, uh, we have folks who are saying, I wish you all would stop going back and finding these things about American history that make us sensitive to our sordid racial violence in our past. But there are some things about American history that once we find out about them, we say, oh, gee whiz, I didn't know that a critical mass of the people who were involved in the most basic element of the industrialization that made America a great industrial power was coal mining, for example. Mm-hmm. And so black people had been some of the first folks to mine coal outside of Richmond, Virginia, for example. Nobody would associate Richmond with coal mining, but few right. people know that part of slavery, that was coal mining. Go a few hundred miles southwest of Richmond and you end up in Birmingham, Alabama. Well, Birmingham, Alabama was one of the major places where coal was mined uh, in the late 1890s, early 1900s. The biggest company in the United States at the time was called United States Steel. That's where you get the Pittsburgh Steelers from. Right. It was okay. Steel. Right. My father worked for U.S. Steel starting in 1938. Uh, my father was a coal miner who worked for uh, United States Steel's coal mining interests, which were in Birmingham, Alabama. My father worked for them in Harlan County, Kentucky. But United States Steel, which was a behemoth, much like Amazon was today, rather, uh, that company uh, owned all of these coal mining territories. Everybody knows about Gary, Indiana, but they don't associate that with the fact that that is where steel was produced. Pittsburgh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama. Well, where did they get the coal from? They got the coal out of the Appalachian South. Who mined the coal? African-Americans were, were, were some of the earliest of all of these coal miners. My grandfather, I'm 75 years old. My father's father was a coal miner. My uncles were coal miners. My oldest brother, God rest his soul, was a coal miner. Uh, so I grew up in the very middle of the Appalachian region in Harlan County, Kentucky. Many people know of a movie called Harlan County, USA, but few of them would associate that part of the world with black coal miners. Just mm-hmm. as now in retirement, I live in Houston, Texas. Well, there are all kinds of records around here about black cowboys. But when we take people to San Antonio to the Witt Museum and look at the role of black cowboys, everybody goes, well, I didn't know that black people had been half of the cowboys, you know, who uh, kind of the whole cattle industry of the South was built on these black black cowboys. So similarly, I'm saying legends like the John Henry legend, uh, building the railroads of the South. Black people mm-hmm. were a critical part of that, Black men particularly. And of course, there was a, they, these families. So so that's what we try to do uh, in our work. Now, as your reference to my book called The Harlan Renaissance, H-A-R-L-A-N, that's mm-hmm. the county in Kentucky where my parents worked and we, uh, me and my Tim does sisters live. Well, uh, what I was trying to show is that at the turn of the 20th century, Millions of black people migrated up the East Coast from the South Carolina, from Georgia, from Florida, from Tennessee, and they mm-hmm. went up what is now Interstate 95 and they ended up in New York City. And it was called Harlem, mm-hmm. Marcus Garvey, 125th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. Well, right. Uh, in the same sense that all of those millions and millions of black people went up there and formed something called the Harlem Renaissance, that explosion of interest in art and music and politics and the whole range of life in Harlem uh, 
the Harlem Renaissance, Claude McKay, you can name the Harlem Renaissance. Right. Well, Absolutely. on the other end of it, these black people came out of Alabama and, and there was a rebirth of black life in the mountains of the South in and around Southwest Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Southern West Virginia, not really well-known places, but hundreds and hundreds of black pe people migrated to that place while other blacks like those I just mentioned migrated up the East Coast where many blacks, as you know, were migrating out West to Houston and on out to LA. And many were coming out of the South, out of Mississippi, out of Alabama, out of Georgia. And they came up the Mississippi River Valley into Chicago, another one of those promised lands, those magnetic points. So right. I'm saying there was these rural blacks who came into rural West Virginia, rural East Kentucky, rural Southwest Virginia, and they were the bulk of coal mining families that helped to build America's industrial framework. And so, yeah, and so that and that's great. And so, were they prime? Did they primarily go there based because of uh, because of U.S. Steel, or was it, or were they recruited to move there? Uh, um, based on the fact that they there were going to be jobs available. Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, as you know, uh, right now, uh, uh, when you when you look around the movement of people, uh, as they say, the problems on the southern border. Well, there are a lot of people on the southern border who come into the United States when the United States southern border was part of Mexico, right? So yeah. a, a lot of people now look at people of Hispanic descent, particularly Mexicans moving around America looking for work. Well, you have to remember at the end of the Civil War, when we were, quote, freed or uh, got away from sharecropping, as was the case of my grandparents on my mother's side, I got out of Macon, Georgia, uh, they were looking around, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And so many of them went to what Claude Brown called Manchild in the Promised Land. And they tried mm. to find other promising places in America to go and work. That is what these folk did. Uh, these folk who are, who are my people coming out of the deep south into the Appalachian region working to the coal mines. Uh, on the other hand, there were active pool factors because companies like United States Steel, not only did they go and find ladies named Miss Willie May down in Alabama to come up north with her husband named Mr. Willie Jones or somebody like that. At the same time, uh, these companies went to Ellis Island and they recruited Italians and Hungarians and Czechs and white ethnics out of Eastern Europe, they came into the Alleghenies of West Virginia. They mm -hmm. came over into the mountains of Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia. So in the in late 1890s, early 1900s, up to 1940, there was this movement of people, uh, another exodus of people going into the, the, the cities. But at the same time, there were people went into these rural areas because coal mining was primarily a rural industrial activity. It was in rural areas that, that you mm -hmm. know, uh, that coal mining took place. So yes, the companies did, United States Steel, International Harvester, uh, companies owned by people whose names are as familiar to us as J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, these 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 industrial barons of the 1900s. Uh, uh, they were the Bill Gates of the day. You know, they were the Elon Musk's of the day. Right. And they went into <laughs> the South and they did the same thing. So, you know, nothing is new under the sun when it comes to what, do working class people like my grandparents, what did they do in the 1890s when my grandmother was born in 1895, you know, on both sides? Uh, and she, one of them lived to be 103, the other lived to be 104. Mm -hmm. But what happens in their lives when they were 20 years old in, uh, in 1910? So you see, these were the people who were growing up at a time uh, when Booker T. Washington died in 1915, for example, you know, 
Uh, there was a lot of movement of black people out of the South when Booker T. Washington had, had built uh, Tuskegee. And he had also helped to build Hampton Institute and all these historically black colleges that rolled up around that same time in the late 1800s. So mm. my people were rural people. Uh, they did not end up in New York City, nor Philadelphia, nor Baltimore, but they ended up in places called Jenkins and Hazard and Harlan and Pineville and uh, Yips, you know, those, those kind of places in, in okay. the mountains of the South. Great. And so you, you know, you grew up there around, you know, the 50s and, you know, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And so overall, how... And, and and you mentioned the melting pot of you know people in the area. So how were you know blacks treated, or what was the environment like growing up uh, in the region? Uh, well, you know, for my parents' generation and my grandparents' generations, and uh, to a large extent to my generation, the the, the Civil Rights Act came about when I was uh, uh, nineteen years old, nineteen sixty-five. The Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty-five. So uh, if, if we were walking down a little town I was born and raised in called Lynch, Kentucky, Lynch, uh, not meaning any reference to hanging, of course, but the president of the United States Steel's last name was Lynch. So he named mm. the town after himself. Okay. Uh, it was it was segregated. Our, 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 the facade of the school we went to had the Lynch colored public school. It was written in the concrete. It's still there. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, uh, still so there. OK. It, it was like any other place in the South. Uh, you had separate facilities, public facilities, uh, recreational facilities, uh, worshiping houses of worship, whatever. It was America's version of apartheid. We just simply called it segregation. It was a way of life that we accepted, you know, because that was the way it was legally set up that way. The United States government itself helped to frame segregation as part of the legal system. And as we all know, or those of us who are willing to look back at it, we're right now ourselves trying in this generation, trying to undo some of the damage, some of the consequences of a segregated society. So we're literally having to live through what was framed back then. But one of the things about that kind of community though, when we were segregated, it meant we were self-reliant. It meant we mm -hmm. depended on ourselves. It meant we knew we could not count on anybody to give us anything and we had to make do ourselves. So what that did is it created a community based around unity, a community based around we have a common experience, we have mm -hmm. a common background. So it's best for us to do things to work in common with each other. And then somehow uh, uh, integration was framed in such a way that, okay, let's get rid of everything that reminds us of this segregated way. And now we're in a situation where we have neither. We no longer mm. have that 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 camaraderie. We no longer have that kind of, of uh, synergy in the community. The community has essentially been split in many kinds of ways. And that applies to New York City, to Harlem in New York, as much as it applies to Harlem uh, where I grew up. Uh, so, so it's kind of like a, what goes around has come around and, and mm. we don't have that independence anymore. Uh, and uh, that's one of our challenges right now, is how do black communities survive in a future uh, where all those structures, those organizations that were built in segregation, uh, those businesses that came out of a segregated, they no, they no, no longer exist. Uh, and so uh, uh, I, I would say, uh, 
another illustration of it is that families were much more intact in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and even later as the 70s. Because uh, during that time, you know, eight out of 10 black children were born into a family where the man and the woman were married. And now it's just the opposite. Uh, mm. Two out of 10 are born into a family where the man and the woman are married. So uh, wow. integration right. and some of these things we call progress has really been to the disadvantage of the African-American community. Yeah, and, we'll touch, and we will touch upon that in, okay. as I address the question of as far as the current day uh, Harlan. Okay. I'd love to hear about that. But, uh, you know, in doing the research of the book and fascinating stuff and um, in some of the excerpts, but what made you feel that you wanted to tell the story of Harlan and, you know, and the pe not only just the place, but the people in it? What made you decide to want to do that? A couple of things. One, uh, I had the pleasure for about a dozen years of serving as a research associate to the author of both the autobiography of Malcolm X and Roots. I worked for Alex Haley uh, for about 12 years mm. as a research associate. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, I had had experience as a professor at Fish University and at Howard University when I was a young man. Uh, and uh, so at one point, uh, uh, Alex had said to me, you're from a place of a very unique historical uh, footprint. Why don't you focus on that? Why don't you write about it? Uh, nobody can do it but you. Nobody knows about this but you. It's up to you to do this. And so that was the spur of it. And then, too, I came from a very close-knit family of storytellers, my father and his brothers and our sisters and my mother's people. Uh, we were all very uh, – we, we, our family was imbued with a deep sense of family and history. And so it kind of came very natural. But uh, to your point – uh, I was quite interested to write this story because as I got older, going away from uh, the book called Blacks in Appalachia, it occurred to me I had better finish this book that I later came to call uh, uh, the Harlan Renaissance that came out a couple of months ago. And, and I, I'm so glad that I was able to stick with it and finish it because it, 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 it is, a, it is a, a story that needed to be told and... Uh, in fact, I hope what it does is it inspires so many other people in the mountains of West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, North Alabama, East Tennessee, these relatively unknown places where Black people mm -hmm. have always been, that there are people who can do stories there too. And I want to suggest that you need, you don't have to have a degree in cultural anthropology to do it, but rather uh, tape recorders, uh, people can get their old folk stories, and you would be amazed at some of the things that we don't know about such places that I've tried to write about. Great. And so, and that leads to my next question. Is there, I mean, and I know you grow up there, grew up there and probably talked about um, a lot of people that you, you knew, but was there a, and since we really talk about, um, you know, on this show, black men and then how extraordinary they are, do you have a particular person that you wrote about in your book that really resonated with the resiliency of the region? Yeah, well, uh, probably several. Uh, in the back of my book, I think through the, oh, the chapter before the book ends, uh, there was this there was this body of water, what we call in the mountains of the south, a creek. Uh, there was a creek <laughs> yeah. that flowed through our town called Looney Creek, L-O-O-N-E-Y. 
it, okay. it, it sprang out of the highest mountain in Kentucky in our county, and it was called Looney Creek. So I have a chapter called Not Bad for Some Black Kids from Looney Creek, okay? And one of the persons we mentioned immediately in there is a fellow who uh, is a, uh, at this very day, he's a few years older than I am. He's uh, maybe 78, 79 by now. His name is Bernard Bickerstaff. Uh, Bickerstaff has been a coach for five or four, at least four NBA teams. Yeah, Bernie uh, Bickerstaff. Oh, Bernie yeah. Bickerstaff. I grew up with Bernie. I've known him all of my life. Uh, Bernie grew up. I can, If I had a rock in my hand, I could throw it and hit his house from where I'm sitting right now. And in fact, Bernie's son, JB, uh, John Blair, is the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers right now. Oh, okay. Uh, before Bernie, there was a guy named Willis Bunny, B-U-N-N-Y, Bunny Thomas, who played for the Harlem Globetrotters. He was my sister's classmate. He had gone to Tennessee State. He came home in 1960. I was 14 years old. And he had a drop-top white Thunderbird. And everybody's going, oh, my God, look at this car. <laughs> And these, what I'm saying is that so many of our homeboys, they went to Cleveland. We had guys who went to Howard University Medical School in the 40s. So we had these, we had these people who were role models to us who left home. They left a little colored school where the chemistry uh, department had a match and a beaker. And, uh, you know, uh, so we, we've seen this intergenerational mobility. I know families like Bonnie Thomas's family, it was 10 of them. All of them graduated from college. All 10 of them graduated from college. And their daddy was a coal miner, just like my father. Their mama was a homemaker, just like my mom. And so the resilience, the perseverance, the character, the hard work, the, the you're not going to hold me back. Uh, uh, and I would say even in my own life, I was able to get a doctorate from Notre Dame when I was 26. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of that was like I had these teachers at these colored schools who imbued us with this Booker T. Washington kind of attitude of hard work, self-reliance, don't feel sorry for yourself, ain't nobody going to give you bootly squat, you got to work for it yourself, Uh, stop complaining, be positive, you know, be a man, be honest, be hardworking, believe in God, and be nice to other people, and all those fundamental values, you know, that came out of the Southern tradition that was rooted in the church. And that is what, as we say, we came this far by faith. And so guys like those I just mentioned, uh, so I could go through a list over here of people from these regions. There are a lot of them who have national names. Uh, T.D. Jakes, for example, I can remember so well the first time I went to T.D. Jakes's church. He had a church in South Charleston, West Virginia. Man, about mm. 30 years ago, had a dirt floor. It had a dirt floor. Right. <laughs> Long before TDJ got, got out here in Texas, in Dallas, you know, in the Potter's house with 25,000 people and another one in Atlanta, this guy had come from a, a very uh, modest background in South Charleston, West Virginia. So we throw out names like Bill Withers grew up a coal miner, too. You know, lean on me. Grandma well, yeah, Ken. absolutely. Bill Withers came from Slab Fork, West Virginia. His dad oh, was wow. a coal miner. Okay. Uh, someone like uh, uh, Nina Simone came from Tyrone, North Carolina, right outside of Black Mountain, North Carolina, where a black woman, a singer named Roberta Flack, had come out of Black Mountain, North yeah. Carolina. Uh, 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 what's his name? He comes on uh, Family Feud. What's that brother's name? He's from Beckley, West Virginia. 
Steve Harvey. Oh, Steve Harvey, yeah. yes. Steve Harvey's family, coal mining family, man, out of Beckley, West Virginia. He just moved to Cleveland when he was like 19 or something like that. Right. So there are lots and lots of examples of high achieving African Americans whose grandparents' roots were in some of the most modest, impoverished places in America. And uh, and I just think they're a great example for all African Americans when we look at what happens in big cities and, and how we have to adjust and not let the vicissitudes of life bury us when we're young and we just wait until we die when we're older, but that actually we can grasp life by its horns ourselves, work with each other and make for our families in a way that our grandparents did when they had much less than we do. That's great. That's great. So, and that kind of leads to my next question because, um, you know, coal is not as prominent a resource that we use today, right. um, but yet the people um, still live in these, in these towns. And um, uh, what does Harlan County kind of look like today when, in regards to African-Americans? Uh, and is that same kind of spirit, uh, is that still there in the town? Or in the area, I should say. Only in memory right now. Here, mm. here's, here's what's going on. The uh, uh, when these when these big companies like United States Steel decides to fold its tent and leave and say we we had when we started this town we knew by our geological surveys that based upon our production we could mine coal here for a hundred years, and they did it from 1917 to about 1977, and then it was gone. Mm. Uh, and what happened? The people left. People went to Cleveland. People went to Chicago. They went to Milwaukee. They went to New York. They went to Philadelphia. They went to Nashville. They went to Atlanta. They went to Charlotte. The subdivision I live in right now probably has more people than there are in the town I grew up in uh, in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, so right now, many of those places are trying to reclaim the land that was ravished by the latest form of coal mining which was mountaintop removal, when the companies would just come in and literally scrape the tops of the mountain to get down to the coal seams, whereas our fathers mm. used to go into the mine like in a subway, uh, uh, where right. they're going on a, in a, on a drift uh, a, a track, like a right. railroad, and going there and mine the coal. Well, uh, in, in, in the latter years here, coal was mined in, in a much more uh, destructive and environmentally destructive way. So that many places like my home county, the population decline became quite precipitous. Uh, Harlan County, when I was a teenager, had 70,000 people in it. Well, 50 years later, it has 20,000 people in it. If the outmigration of all people in West Virginia were equivalent to the outmigration of the last half century of Black West Virginians, there wouldn't be any people in Joe Manchin State because West Virginia's Black population has, has just shrunk 75% in the last 50 years. Uh, what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to uh, make do or, or do better with what you might call remote employment, you know, uh, call centers, uh, mm -hmm. uh, such as so much of our international uh, internet-based commerce is done in the third world countries of India and in certain parts of Africa. And, uh, you know, when you pick up the phone to make your reservations about this that well that's done and a lot of done remotely uh, another way that we're trying to to find uh 
new ways for people to make a living, stay in the mountains of the South. It's what we call ecotourism. There are a lot of people, uh, including black people. I work with work with a group they call Outdoor Afro. And, and these are some mm-hmm. black folk in, uh, in and around Asheville that say, we want to be in the Smoky Mountains too. So you have African-Americans who want to be outside in these beautiful places in West Virginia and Kentucky and Tennessee, where you can kayak, you can hike. Uh, uh, there are fascinating places to visit just based upon being outside. Mm-hmm. So that ecotourism is another alternative. Uh, 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 we, we're hoping uh, that some of uh, the uh, new ways to do agriculture, uh, for example, in Moorhead, Kentucky, there's a massive place where they simply grow tomatoes, uh, but it's all under one roof, and it's a large. It's the size of 60 football fields where you can do wow. year-round agriculture uh, under uh, a big dome, literally. Uh, they, it's hydroponic, but, I would assume. Hydroponic. Hydroponics, that's what it's based on, yes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, with with that, uh, call centers, uh, uh, I'm I'm hopeful that as we see the the, uh, infrastructure bill that has passed just in the past few days, uh, this Build Better Back, Build Back Better, uh, will will employ African-Americans so that what you find in so many parts of rural Appalachia is the biggest employer is Walmart. Uh, uh, And what we're hoping is that small light industry will come back uh, or come into the mountains, but that will require certain improvements in the infrastructure. How can you get from where you are into West Virginia in a quicker time than you do right now? Uh, Mm. But if you get down close to a place like Morgantown, West Virginia, which is just an hour or so south of Pittsburgh, uh, so it's highways, it's internet, it's broadband, of course, uh, and I think that we can find a way, uh, uh, solutions to these problems of unemployment that came about as a result of globalization uh, and mechanization so that uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, way my father was able to raise 10 of us, uh, having gone to three grades and my mother going to 10 grades and they raised 10 children, but he was able to have steady employment for 50 years. And I think mm. there's still people who say, if I can have steady employment, uh, health care, uh, child care, uh, what's wrong with living in East Kentucky as opposed to living in uh, East Bronx or East South Bronx or wherever people are, are, are located in bigger cities? Right. Lives, when you compare it, when you're trapped in a uh, the poverty, the grinding poverty of the inner city, Quite frankly, that's no different than what people might think about the poverty of Appalachia. As my father used to say, if you're lying face down in a creek, it doesn't matter how deep the water is. Mm. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, right. Yeah, so, so, so in many places, people are, are, are lying face down. And we're, we're just hopeful that we can do things uh, so that people can stand up and get up and do better, which is what I think they want to do, uh, than... Uh, we might think that people just are, are a bunch of uh, lazy folk who quote want to live off the government or whatever. Far from right. it. people want absolutely. To yeah, um, yeah. So two more things. Uh, I was reading a, a quote that is when I, I went on a blog about the actually your story, James Branscombe, and he said that um, Appalachia's fortunes are America's riches and the other way around. And so, what do you think about that statement? Do you agree? 
uh, with that? Um, or do you have a kind of a, a different take on that? No, I don't. I know Jim Brascom very well. Uh, I've known him many years. Uh, and Mr. Dan, you know, uh, we both have seen, for example, uh, if you take a map of Africa, of the African continent, and if you color coded it by yellow is gold, black is oil, green is titanium, uh, uh, purple is uh, wood, uh, uh, yellow is water. Africa is one of the richest, is the most mineral rich place on the earth, but African people are some of the poorest people on the earth. Mm. You apply that same thing to Appalachia and you will find that it's resource-based, coal, natural gas, particularly natural gas at this point, uh, timber in terms of forestry, uh, a number of other uh, minerals, uh, in the form of stone that can be used in the building industry, the production of concrete. Uh, so when, when Branson talks about America's riches are Appalachia's resources, it's the same thing. Mm. In many places where you have extraction zones, the companies will come there and say, we have come to, F to extract this product right here. And we're going to take it out. We're going to go and sell it. And when it's all gone, you're going to be stuck there. So, it's the same way too. How can we countenance? How do we how do we follow the logic of what we see sometimes when we picture Africa's people? And but on the other hand, we know that every element inside this cell phone here can be found in certain parts of Africa. You cannot get it anywhere else in the world. The titanium, the cobalt, uh, mm. these minerals, they're in South Africa, they're in Mozambique, they're in Zimbabwe. Similarly, the coal. The natural gas is in West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, East Tennessee. Uh, uh, Kentucky probably has more water power than any state its size for the generation of electricity that goes out of the state somewhere else. Mm. So that's what Jim meant. America needs Appalachia for its mineral resources, but also its people want to say, we don't want to be a place where you just come and extract things and take them out. We want to be part of the bigger picture, that we mm -hmm. all are Appalachians, so to speak. What happens to one of us uh, happens to all of us. Uh, and I think that can be just looked at in the sense of how we need to just take better care of, of humans uh, in this country when we think about what are some of the big critical issues in Washington every day it just boils down to shall we, without question, designate X amount of dollars to the tax relief of wealthy people or as we donate millions and millions of dollars every day to the military industrial complex. But on the other hand, when we start talking about dental care and child care and health care, that's when the politicians start quibbling and saying, we can't afford to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, we, mm -hmm. we, we have to right. do it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, especially if we're if we're taking resources out of the the land, we should pour it back into the people. That's right. That's right. Uh, so that's that's quite fascinating. So um, so so last thing, uh, which I um, always ask my guests, uh, and and I really I thank you for for uh, being on today. Um, but I always ask this of the guests, um, and it's really more about. 
you and how you're feeling since you've been, you know, on this earth a while and you've seen a lot of different things. Um, what are your feelings um, or right now about uh, being a black man uh, here in America? Well, uh, one of the biggest questions that we're faced with when we look at America and its future is education. So I am have spent most of my life as an educator. But here we are at a point in American history where we have a lot of people who are critical of any education or any educational process that, that focuses on teaching us about the critically important role of race in American history, okay? Uh, it's called those who stand against critical race theory, for example. Well, as an African-American man, uh, I can't help but be optimistic. Uh, I mean, as an industrial strength optimist, that in spite of, uh, I mean, for example, Mr. Dent, yesterday, I didn't go, oh my God, when uh, they uh, decided that the men that they put in prison for 50 years for killing Malcolm X didn't really kill Malcolm X, they say. Well, uh, there are many African-American men I know who say, well, big surprise in that. We kind of, you know, nothing surprises us when it comes to how certain historical facts are held. And then later we find out that what we thought all along was the truth. So as an African-American man, I'm saying that uh, the most uh, important thing that we can do is educate our children about the past so that they will be familiar with what went on. It's one thing to know what went on. And then another important thing for an African-American man as such is, so why did it happen that way? So if you know what happened and why it happened, you're most likely to be prepared when you see those same circumstances begin to bubble up again. And therefore, you can be better prepared to adjust and to uh, uh, respond to it appropriately. So uh, I am fortunate to have two grown sons and two grown too grown, two teenage grandsons. And uh, so we attempt to pass that down the way I started talking here about my own father uh, and his father. And so uh, uh, even in the sense of with my own family, we have a grandson whose name, his first name is the same as my father. And so these four or five guys with the same first name mm -hmm. is, is a sense of we have to keep that going because we know that Popeye is now 75. And uh, and so as a 75-year-old African-American man, I'm uh, cognizant of the fact that I've seen some transformational changes since the 1950s when Emmett Till was killed in 1955, I think that was. Mm -hmm. And then when I had sat down with my grandsons and we watched the George Floyd thing, and I said, Popeye has seen all of that over a space of 75 years. And so that things repeat themselves. And now we're at a point where many things that are happening to African-Americans, we're not in the best position to respond to them because some of the organizational uh, frameworks we had to respond as a group got diminished as a result of what we call assimilation and integration. But for example, I was so happy yesterday when I, when I saw uh, 100 black men show up at the Aubrey uh, trial in Georgia right. when that prosecutor down there said, we don't want you black preachers in town. And, and uh, 100 of them came. Well, I said, right. hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs>
those yeah. brothers are, are dealing like they used to could deal when I was uh, 20 years old and we had no cell phones, we had no Snapchat, we had no Twitter, we had no Facebook say, everybody gather here. Somehow yesterday, it looked like 1955 again. It looked like Martin had called his boys out. It looked mm. like Malcolm was walking down the street in LA with 200 Muslims behind him saying, we're not taking this anymore. We are right, men. Right. So that's how I feel about it in, in a way. And I hope that it, it uh, comes through in the right way to say that I'm not some kind of Neanderthal looking for us to go backwards, but I am looking for us to take some of those things that brought us along the way to maintain them and to strengthen them and to adapt them to new realities and new challenges we have so that we will we will see our grandsons and our granddaughters uh, reach your age and certainly hopefully mine too. Great, great. Well, Dr. Turner, this has been great. Um, for those of you that will listen to this, The Harlan Renaissance, a uh, great book, uh, and plus any uh, Blacks in Appalachia, if you really want to read more about uh, the region and just the the resiliency of the people that these are our people uh please check those books out so dr turner thank you for being on today and thank you so much for this opportunity to tell our story sir thank you so you're much. welcome Bye now. okay great this indeed was truly a history lesson that i was thankful dr turner shared with us if you want to get a more in-depth look into the region please pick up Harlan Renaissance. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can check out previous episodes on Libsyn, Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please subscribe. As you know, we always like to end with a favorite quote, and this one comes from our guest today, Dr. William Turner. And it goes like this. Those blacks in Central Appalachian coal camps today who chose to or have to remain and those who return have a rich history on which to rely. A history deeply rooted in a dogged determination to stay alive and thrive despite the odds and challenges over which they have no control. In a way, all people in Appalachia's former coal camps are canaries now. The legacy left by the blacks who kept their hopes alive by working the mines of Central Appalachia is deep. They breathed a lot of bad air, but they survived and many thrived by drawing in courage and faith and exhaling hope to the future generations. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men's Beat Podcast. Peace.